Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1962 film, The Exterminating Angel. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, this was uh, a movie that I watched on Sunday, and it was such an interesting experience watching this. And I want to I want to get into that uh, in a little bit. But it is a movie that I'm glad I watched early in the week because it has been helpful to have some time to let it sort of bounce around in my brain and think different things about it. This was also a movie that was very helpful to read, um, read some reviews of, read some criticism of that, that helped me unpack uh, it helped me unpack the movie, but mostly it helped me it helped like assure me that my experience of the movie was actually happened because there's <laughs> in this movie where you're like, I think that's what I saw happen, but now I'm not sure. So mm-hmm. it was, read about it and be like oh no that's in fact what happened there um so i really want to get into this but let's start with our with our usual opening uh what is your history with this film or with uh uh boonwell and am i am i saying his name right is it louis boonwell Boonwell. Boonwell. okay yeah yeah well my my history with boonwell is um let's see probably the first Bunuel film I saw was Belle de Jour, which is one of his later films in the mid 60s, 67, I think it is with Captain Deneuve. So that was in kind of his last period. And I remember when um, that obscure object of desire uh, and the sweet charm of the bourgeoisie, I remember those coming out. I didn't see them at the time. I was a little bit too young, but probably my first real engagement with Bunuel was his first film, the, his famous short film he made with Salvador Dali or Sean Andalou which is a 16-minute silent surrealist film. Um, and, and basically, Benwell was a surrealist his whole, his whole life, as obviously you can see in The Exterminating Angel. So that was kind of the first Benwell film that I kind of really got into and used it in class. And that's sort of where I started with, with Benwell. Do you remember first seeing this? Vaguely, I saw it maybe 10, 15 years ago. It also would have been on, on DVD. And it's really funny, Sam, because I remember not being impressed with it as I thought I should have been. Um, so, and I, and, I, and I remember having a hard time figuring out kind of where the film was going. So it was a film that I, I, I could see that it was an important and an interesting film, but it didn't kind of blow me away the way I was sort of hoping it would, to be frank. I actually liked it much better the second time around. Maybe in a way because I'd seen it before and I was a little bit better prepared for what was going to happen. See, I, it, and just just by the story you you've told, my guess is you were your second viewing. You were a little more prepared for what you were about to see, and your first viewing is you were probably a little too well prepared because you knew who Boonwell was. So, like, like. I remember it when we talked uh, when you recommended this. You mentioned the connection with Dolly, but I didn't like. I didn't put any weight in that. Mm. So this strikes me as one of the great movies to watch to knowing absolutely nothing. And what I love is even the title of the movie. And we'll get to this a little bit too. Like the title doesn't tell you what this is going to be about. If the title sounds like a gangster movie or something, it's a great title for a gangster movie. Right. Um, so I was, that's what I was picturing somehow what we were going to watch. And then uh, it starts up and we're in this, well, it starts up and, and, a person is leaving a mansion and, and seems to be very concerned about wanting to leave. And, and his boss is trying to get him to stay. And then it just feels like a, 
almost like upstairs, downstairs kind of feel like we have the servants and we have the the people awaiting this party. And I thought, okay, well, I guess this is what this is going to be about. And then uh, a couple, a couple things happened that made, we didn't pause the movie, but my daughter and I watched this and we, we at the same instant sort of snapped, turned to each other and said, did that just happen? And it, it, I think it was when the, uh, the the guests arrive mm-hmm. and you see the 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 host say you know looking for the people and it's like okay well let's go upstairs they'll take your coats there and then there's another scene and all of a sudden that scene happens again and and I thought something went wrong like with streaming because I thought well we just saw that but I also felt like it doesn't look exactly the same or did it and 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 I just that was a moment where my brain sort of clicked on and was like, "Oh, it's going to be this. There's going to be things." But what's interesting is it's not a lot of that. There are there are a couple times something like that happens. There are lines of dialogue that, if you're paying attention, get repeated. There's certain things that get repeated, certain strange things that happen. But it's not like the movies. If he went to that well a lot, it would might might be interesting, but it would feel like it would feel like there's a lot of that. The fact that he just puts enough on that to like almost upset you as a viewer to say like, wait a minute, are we doing this or are we doing something that's a little more straightforward? I, I loved the fact that I kept asking why, as I watched this movie. And when I got to the very end and read more about it, I realized all of my why questions are um, a feature, not a bug in this movie. Like that's the the point is he's asking you to say, well, why are you asking why about that? Or what, what is behind your why questions? Uh, and I, that just really excited me as I thought about it. So I think knowing almost, I mean, knowing really nothing about this movie and even the kind of movie it was going to be uh, helped a lot. Well, you know, it's just Sam, but but I I wanted to watch it again this week, and I didn't have time because Bunuel claims that there are twenty repetitions in the film. Um, I didn't see twenty. Um, I saw maybe four or five. So some of them might be quite small. So, but I want to I want to get back to what you said about the the title. That was a really interesting point because one of the things that's interesting about Rashan Andalou, which translated as an Andalusian dog. Uh, there is no dog in that film, and it has nothing to do with Andalusia. So, um, so it's interesting how his titles may or may not relate to what's going on. Although I do think there's a theory as to why it's called the Extending Angel. The other thing that I discovered, and this this I found through reading Roger Ebert's review, is um, there's an alternative, an al- there's an alternative opening to the film. Um, and I have not been able to find much about the history of that. But in, in, the, in, the, in, in the alternative credits, when the credits roll, uh, it says this. If the film you're about to see seems puzzling and even disturbing, it is so because frequently so is life itself. The author declares he did not wish to present any symbols, at least not consciously. As, is, as it is in life, this film has some repetitions and is open to different interpretations. And just as we relive and recreate different sequences of life, sequences in our story reappear. The best explanation of this film is that from the standpoint of pure reason, there is no explanation. I'm so glad you brought that up because I read that as well. And I I went back and started the movie over and said, how did I possibly yeah. miss that? And it's not, it was not on the the version of the film that I saw. I'm so glad it wasn't. Oh, I know. I think it's much better without it, but you can see it. I go, I found it on YouTube. Okay. Um, there's an alter. The, so, and I, but I haven't been able to find, as I said, in the history of the film, I didn't dig that deeply 
you know, when it was released with that with that preface and then when it was taken out. But clearly, I, I tend to view the Criterion editions as authoritative. So since well, I, it was the Criterion one, I assume that that was not, I, I have no idea what Bunuel's relationship to that alternative opening was. So I'd like to yeah. know more. I can only assume he wouldn't want that because that seems like the opposite of what, uh, I can't imagine an artist wanting to say, let me like, put you at ease and let me calm yeah. you like because that that's what this does it's sort of it's tipping the hand way too much yeah it's explaining that there is no explanation doesn't really make much sense um and, and one of the criterion extras actually has an interview with the actress who plays the valkyrie you know the virgin in the film the one who has the solution at the end it's a quote-unquote solution and and she said that you know one of the things as actors was they, they didn't understand what was going on and Bunuel wouldn't explain anything to them it was just so i yeah it doesn't seem characteristic of Bunuel to put that as an explanation let's let's just talk about the title um because th that's one of the things that i wanted to talk about anyhow we've already brought it up um uh, the only thing that, I, as I was reading, I found uh, a reference to a, a statue in a cemetery in Spain, and Bunuel is Spanish, um, that's on the ruins of an old church that's called the Exterminating Angel. Huh. Um, so, like, that, 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 as a reference to that is presumably something he was aware of, but that's the only reference I could find to that. And then I'm curious your thoughts about that as a title for this film. Yeah, well, one, 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 one possibility is, you know, there are, there are a couple shots in the film of angels, although they look more like pooties than exterminating angels, and they're particularly associated with a couple that commit suicide. Um, you know, so one, one critic has suggested that it's a reference to the angel of the Exodus, uh, and, that's, and that there's some kind of divine judgment being pronounced on the, on the ruling classes. And that seems somewhat plausible to me, although of course Bunuel, Bunuel denied any kind of uh, allegorical interpretation of the film, although that's one inevitable way to think about it, that it's a very political film and it is, it is a judgment on the, the ruling fascist uh, government of Spain at the time. It's interesting that you bring up the, the, the sort of the angel in, in Exodus because, because of the title, I also had this thought of before we see the outside world again, when you know, once they're trapped in that room, I had this wondering, like, are they going to get out of the room and then realize that everyone else is dead? Like, because mm -hmm. I was thinking, like, like, is this like a Passover? And actually, them being trapped there is going to, at first, in quotes, save them, and then realize that actually they're 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 now subject to an even worse thing, which is everybody else. Like, I just. I, I love the fact that I kept trying to get out ahead of him and trying to sort of logic and reason this out and then realizing that for him, one of the traps that he thinks we're in is this sense of like trying to put pieces together and trying to understand symbols and things to say, well, now we're, now we're going to create meaning out of this. And he's sort of pushing at that idea a little bit to say, well, maybe those, those narratives you try to create around things, uh, maybe those are things we take comfort in that we shouldn't take so much comfort in. Well, that's well, that's certainly a perspective he learned from Freud, the idea that, that, that creating a narrative is a way of censoring those things that we can't understand or trying to, trying to um, uh, bring reason to, to things that are, seem irrational. But it, it, this is one of, the, one of the reasons why I picked this film, Sam, in terms of something else we often do, which is connected to other films we've watched is because in a couple of different respects, I connected it to Groundhog Day. And one of the, the, one of the 
elements of Groundhog Day that we talked about is there is no explanation for why what's happening in that film is happening. And one of the ways in which the film was made better in, in the production was taking out any reference to why Bill Murray's character was uh, experiencing what he was experiencing. So it's possible the title of the Exterminating Angel tells us that there's an exterminating angel at work here, but it's also possible that it's a kind of a red herring. And it really, there really is no explanation of what's happening. Or the explanation is, uh, is, a, is a naturalistic one in that there is some principle of human nature, some flaw in human nature at work, which is, which is entrapping people within this, uh, within this kind of stasis that they can't break out of. Yeah, I thought about Groundhog Day as well. Um, and, and what I, what I, I mean, obviously Groundhog Day comes out well after this, you know, 30 years later. Um, but I was I was wondering, like, okay, so what is the meaning of this room? And I was thinking, oh, is this like Groundhog Day where they're kind of trapped here? And they also, like, like there isn't even going to be the escape of death. And then people die. And you're mm -hmm. like, okay, well, okay, then it's not that. So, again, I just, I loved, the, I loved the fact that, that he even introduces that into it to say, like, okay, well, this, because the other thing I thought of was the, the play No Exit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it's sort of a, a version of that, but then it's also not that because like they also get out of the room and like it's, it, it does such a great job. It's like this movie knew the references that I was going to think about, even if those references didn't exist yet. And it sort of leads me down a path and then it sort of takes a sharp turn and says, no, it's not that either. And I loved that. I just thought that was. Uh, and I don't know if it just, this was built really well to sort of work with the way my brain wanted to do things, but I think I don't have anything special for a mind. I think he was thinking about human nature and how humans try to make sense out of things. And I, I loved that. I kept being led down a path and then he sort of turned around and said, Nope, this isn't it either. And I loved it. Well, I, well, and, and I think the, I'm going to kind of um, broaden the circle a bit as I think about repetition, because there's repetition in this film, there's repetition in Groundhog Day, there's repetition in defending your life. Um, in Groundhog Day and in defending your life, it is more of a, a kind of a, of a Buddhist or an Eastern view of repetition, more of a karmic repetition where, you know, if you keep repeating until you learn your lesson and then you pass on to the next level in a sense. Whereas this film seemed to suggest that um, repetition looks like it somehow provides an escape, but then you're just caught again is when they go into the church. So it's much more of a Nietzschean repetition, the idea that things just kind of keep happening over and over, which then connects us back to the sacrifice, because you have the postman of the sacrifice who says he keeps thinking about Nietzschean repetition. And the other connection I'm going to make, which is going to sound very odd, but, but bear with me a minute, is I'm going to go back to Raging Bull and think about how there are certain elements of Jake LaMotta's character that he cannot keep from repeating, and a sense in which he's actually trapped within his own, his own nature. And I think that's part of what Bunuel's getting at here. The people are kind of trapped within their own nature. And since they cannot overcome human nature, they cannot overcome the destructive repetitions that they, that they have either adopted or it's been kind of conditioned into them by, by, by society. Another, I'm gonna two other things that 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 this made me think of. Neither of them are films that we watched. One of them is one we talked about though. When we talked about um, Charlie Kaufman, um, mm. we, um, that say that was the same week that I'm thinking of ending things came out, mm. and um, there are. Mm -hmm. This reminded me of my experience watching that too, where things happened, and I I would do double takes of like 
did something just change that I didn't expect? Or so I feel like like Kaufman is doing uh, some doing some of the tricks that Boonwell does here, where he's not obviously telling you something, but then there's things that are really smack you in the face, and you're you're destabilized by it. Uh, and I so I it's so it made me think of, and I loved that movie. It made me think of that experience of I'm on a particular kind of ride with this person, and I don't have. I don't have control and they're going to keep stripping away these things. I mean, the other sort of uh, obvious kind of reference, and it's, this isn't a, spe- it's not this specific thing necessarily, but um, it makes me, and Boonwell talked about like disaster movies, shipwrecks, things like this. Like he thought about these people as like castaways on an Island. It's very Lord of the flies to this sort of sense of like, we have this civilization and like just how tenuous the lines between uh civilization and uh chaos or like our animalistic nature you know that that we have this sort of rich wealthy people and all this stuff and it it took this very small thing which maybe isn't even a thing i mean because it is not clear whether what is the thing that's locking them in that room you know is it just is it to go back to defending your life is it fear is it like are they a once it gets established they can't leave is it fear that's keeping them there that they, that no, because nobody even tries. There is not a scene where somebody like runs at it. And I mean, the only people who start to walk away, they just stop when they get there, which is really, really interesting, you know? So, uh, so, 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 you know, it, it made me think about kind of what are those things that are holding them back? And it just, I loved the, how quickly it breaks down to, I mean, it seems like within 12 hours, all sense of society is starting to erode. And it just seems like that happened really quick. <laughs> well, well, I, I think there's, there's two elements there, Sam. And one is right. The one is the notion of the breakdown of society. So you mentioned, um, uh, you know, Lord of the Flies, um, uh, obviously Heart of Darkness and Lord of the Flies is kind of a, re, a, a retake of Heart of Darkness. Um, so there's, first of all, that kind of, um, I guess you could say it's almost a cliche of the 20th century. This notion that the uh, the civil the, the civilization uh, in which we exist is a veneer, and uh, underneath that veneer, we really are animalistic. We're selfish. We're um, vengeful. And you know, one one of the things I love about one of the elements I love is the way they break up the cello in order to uh, to feed the fire. And something else I haven't been able to track down is I, I read somewhere that Bunuel did not like Pablo Casals, uh, and that that's that's why the cello is is uh, firewood. But I, I haven't been able to find find out more about that. But I think there's something else more important in its critique of society because I, I think the the animalistic thing is a little, as I said, it's a little bit of a cliche. It's a little bit of an easy thing. The thing I think is more interesting and relevant to our our, our society today is. People can't leave because they don't seem to be able to muster the will to leave. They just can't do it. And when I think about our society and I think about a lot of the issues that we are talking about in our society today, and, um, you know, every time there's a mass shooting, we have this issue about when are we going to do something about gun control? We're having a huge conversation right now, but what are we going to do about policing? Um, There's any of a number of what what are we going to do about global warming? I mean, we face all these various crises and we churn. We talk about and we say, maybe we ought to do something about this, we ought to do something about that. But, but what does it take for us actually to make significant change? 
And so I think in a way, the, the more important social critique to me about the film is not just the breakdown of social order, it's the fact that people can't make changes, that people are just, the fact that they're stuck in this cycle of repetition says something very significant about an element of human nature that in many ways is even more destructive than our bestiality, and that is that we can't change conditions as they are, even though we know that we should. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, I think a thing that, that, that plays into it that we also get to see as we explore that room is, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, people turn to rather than change is like this, all this, the, I feel like as you think about the, the things that people do, there's, we have all the little escapes that people try to like, there, there's, you know, there's the, the introduction of that little box with the drugs in it. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and I mean, so there's like both, there's both this sense of like hoarding happening in different places. There's this sense of like, oh, you know, the, the doctor kind of wants to use the, wants to use the drugs for the people who are, you know, kind of wants to dole them out, but you can sort of see even on the edges, people kind of like peeking into frame, watching them. And you're thinking, mm-hmm. you're sort of thinking about that box. You have, um, how quickly we slip into, uh, paranoia or blame we look we have different even within that room we have sort of different religious or kind of um uh answers or or approaches uh you know we have the the the, the freemason who's you know calling out for help and i i love i i loved that scene and then when the guy says well unless the bear is a mason you know <laughs> you're probably you're it's probably not going to do anything um you have the other religious ritual with the the chicken feet and the feathers mm-hmm. and i love the way that was introduced like in a quick a quick shot you see this woman open her purse and, and this is before anything happens mm-hmm. and she has something strange in there and then it just goes away and I didn't know, like, is that going to come back? It's sort of like it's sort of like the sheep and the bears that you see early on, and it's like, well, that's strange. But then when the 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 hostess to the party is talking to the 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 folks in the kitchen, it's almost like she kind of explains it away, and I accepted it instead of thinking, wait a minute, a a bear and some sheep are somehow part of this party, you know? And I mean that that's again one of those things where it's like okay, I, like, I, I guess I'll accept that instead of just saying, this is deeply, deeply strange. Yes, um, what, what kind of practical joke is going to involve a bear and three sheep? Right. <laughs> right. What that would look like. Um, and even the guy, uh, in terms of thinking escapes, I think it's the, like, I guess I don't know what his title would be, but like the head of the, the servants. Because um, mm-hmm. he's the one, per- he's the one non-party goer who's trapped there. Right, right, right. And when he's sitting there eating paper and yes. saying like, well, it makes you feel like you've eaten something. And I thought that was, that was a pretty powerful moment where it's like, we, uh, to, to, to your point, like we are so not dealing with reality that we are going to, uh, literally just consume this thing, which has no particular value other than it, tri- it's, it's fooling yourself. <laughs> it's also an image of a starving artist, right? Trying to, trying right. To- trying to feed himself with his art. <laughs> uh, one of the other, the other things that happens and uh, I, this is a, a kind I mean, we also have the escape of like sex and, and death as an escape. We also have dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and there's, I think, is there two moments where we go into somebody's dreams? I'm trying there's to remember. Least two, maybe even a couple more. Yeah. 
yeah, there, there's kind of this, well, it's very much a surrealist section of the film. Uh, I mean, literally surrealist, because that's exactly how his earlier surrealist films looked like, Shannon Delu and Elijah Deor, um, where you, where, you know, part of what he's trying to do as a surrealist is depict what dreams actually look like. So yes, you have the dreams, and of course you also have the long um, kind of fevered vision of the, of the, of the uh, disembodied hand. Uh, mm -hmm. and you get a completely subjective point of view. It, it looks like she's alone in the room as she sees the hand. So those are the moments where he's really taking you, you know, literally into the unconscious mind. So do you have, and again, this is a movie where I, you're perfectly okay saying, I'm not sure what the meaning of that is. Is there the, the, the scene with the hand is it's the, that's the most protracted of those, uh, of right. those kind of dream vision things. Um, that was one that I just found really interesting, but I wasn't sure what I would, what to do with it. I'm curious if you had thoughts about that, that section of the film. Well, this may have nothing to do with the film, whatever, but it, but it invokes a, uh, a line from Conrad for me, where Conrad says, we live as we dream alone. Um, and, and, it's, and it's interesting in that scene that she is completely isolated. So I think, you know, part of what's going on, obviously, is the idea that even when we're among other people, we are inhabiting our own consciousness. And so, you know, obviously what's happening to her is literally a fever dream, is literally caused by her illness. But at the same time, it kind of heightens that notion that um, that society is an interesting uh, amalgamation of it's a body politic, but it's also all these individual little little egos, individual little consciousnesses. And so I think that sequence helps to kind of heighten that. I'm not sure the fact that it's a disembodied hand has any particular symbolic value. I mean, you know, Bunuel may say there's no symbols, but of course, you know, you trust the tale and not the and not the teller. But to me, it's much more about the the isolation of the individual consciousness. It's kind of echoed a little bit when the women come out of the chamber that's obviously being used as a, as a, as a bathroom, and they talk about I saw an eagle flying below me forty feet, or I had leaves blown in my in, in my face. It's, it's, it's this notion that through our consciousness or our subconsciousness, we have access to interior realms of experience that we don't necessarily share with other people. Hmm. As you think about this, this film, are there, I mean, there's lots of characters in it. Um, and some of the party goers are sort of more well-defined of like, Oh, I know, like, I know who the doctor is and I know. And then others, I, they feel a little more generic. Like, I'm not quite sure. I don't remember. Well, who is this person? And um, do you have, Either character, do you have characters or performances that stand out for you as interesting? Because because whenever you have a, a disaster movie, if this is his take on a kind of disaster movie scenario, like there are kind of types mm -hmm. that stand out. Is he commenting on those types at all, um, or are there other characters that 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 actually stand out to you when you think about this room? Yeah, that's a good question, Sam. Because I, I realized about halfway through the film. <laughs> I wasn't entirely sure who anybody was. Um, for some reason, they all kind of started to look the same to me. I even had a hard time remembering who the host was, Nobile, because he kind of he kind of passes out of the action for, mu for much of the picture. I mean, but obviously the one who stood out for me was, you know, they're, oh, you're right. There always is somebody in, the, in, in, uh, in an action film or a disaster film. There is always this person who says, well, first of all, there's the person that loses their mind, right? There's the person who completely panics. Um, but then there's the person who says, here's what we got to do. So the guy that wants to have Nobile commit suicide to save them, um, he's, I 
he's the large he's a large guy right and he he seems to be the one who's always saying this is a conspiracy you've created this um so i think that was one of the characters that stood out for me just because he was always kind of riling things up and then the other one was the relationship with the between the brother and his sister um that one stood out for me and then of course the two the two lovers as well the, those are the ones that were more individuated for me i guess but it, to be, but to be frank i really have oh and of course the butler the one you talked about earlier otherwise i kind of had a hard time exactly remembering who certain people were which may be one reason why it was hard to pick up on the repetitions because i wasn't always sure that this was the same set of characters i'd seen before yeah and i wondered you know to what degree that is also intentional too to be like these are not um, okay, so if we compare this to something like, uh, like no exit, uh, in no exit, the three characters in there all have very specific backstories that are explaining why they're in this situation. And you, that sort of gets revealed over, over time in that play. The, I, I assume it's intentional that these characters actually are just, they're just, uh, generic kind of upper class people and it's and it's there isn't even in their lives there's not a reason we don't learn slowly that everyone has done everyone has their own like secret awful thing they did that put them in this situation it is just this thing that's happening right and and we yeah we don't and we don't know their relationship to their host um they seem only kind of vaguely connected to each other when you know when they're sitting around the table kind of at the beginning it's like well they introduce a couple characters to us like the valkyrie or the virgin because that person is not known to the other person that's, that they're talking to so i think you're right there is a sense in which they are generic or rep representative it doesn't really matter who they are as individuals it more matters the attitudes that they and the actions they represent another thing that the sort of interesting moment uh in the early part of the film is when when dinner is is being served and the the first tray comes out and the guy trips and again it it's it's interesting because I forget that that happens and it it it's like that's clearly like a a choice to have that happen and to kind of watch their reaction to it but it's also like I don't know that I read like like if I should read too much into you know into those things and like why so I just I I I found there there's so many like specific choices that are happening you know, in that, in the, in the movie as well, that are fascinating to think about. And then at the same time, having this sense that, am I supposed to be looking for meaning in that? Or is yeah. it just something that happened? <laughs> well, the, di the dish they described was so disgusting. I was actually quite pleased that it ended up. On right. And that, and that made me wonder whether that was the whole point that nobody would actually want to eat that. And so, that, so that's why he, he trips right. and, well, well, no one would want to eat it unless everybody else wasn't talking about how good it was, in which case right, they would be trapped yeah, in that. Yeah, which is another one of those, you know, aristocratic things like food sounds so disgusting, but it's, it's de rigueur that you eat it. Right. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, one of the things that I, I loved in this movie. Uh, and this is so, so we're, we're, we're kind of moving towards thinking about the end, end mm -hmm. pieces of this movie is you're watching this film and it's everything is devolving and and then all of the sudden somebody proposes this crazy solution about oh we are all in the same place as we were and if we just it's like out of nowhere i mean it it, it feels like like a if this were a conventional film like a bad script writing thing where like out of nowhere somebody just snaps and has a solution and she starts describing it and you're like this is stupid like this is, <laughs> seems rooted in nothing 
And then they do it and they walk out of the room. And I was at first, I, Esme and I were watching this. And we were both like, are, are we really dumb? Like, were we supposed to have picked up on that? And, and then, you know, it slowly occurs to you that like, maybe they just made that up. Maybe that there is not like, maybe they like that they didn't, it's not that they solved anything. Cause it's not like they're sitting around thinking right. about solutions. I mean, to your point about getting stuck in cycles there, I mean, they're thinking about blaming and this type of thing, but this is not like a finely crafted Sherlock Holmes solution. It's just somebody announces, Hey, I figured it out. And then it, and then it works. Uh, right. Do you have thoughts about that? Uh, Cause I also didn't expect them to get out of the room. And I was baffled when all of a sudden they seemingly for no reason, just walk out. Yeah. Obviously three people have died. So there's, so there's no way that they're actually repeating exactly the way things were. So to, to me, it's, you know, but when well, Bunuel grew up in the church, but when Bunuel was 16, he decided to, to he, he, that's when he, he made his revolt against, against the church. And so one of the things that's happening here is she's telling them a useful fiction. And I think it's one of the ways in which Bunuel is critiquing uh, a number of narratives uh, that try to create meaning. Uh, and I think the fact that we shift from here to the church indicates that the church is one of his objects of, of criticism. So I think that, that what, he's, what he's showing us is the human capacity to uh, fool ourselves by inventing narratives that seem plausible. So in the same way that there was no reason why they couldn't leave the room except their belief that they couldn't, now they can leave the room because they believe they can. So we're, so we're kind of back to this idea that it's a matter of, it's either a paralysis of the will or it's a determination of, uh, of the will. And, and, it, and to me, this is also another way in which the film echoes one other work of literature we haven't yet talked about, which is Waiting for Godot, which you know, famously ends with them saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, and they don't go anywhere. Um, and so in this film, they go somewhere because she has created the illusion, the argument that they can go. But they've never not been able to go. That's the whole point. It's all it's all in their heads. I mean, the room becomes, in a sense, you could say, almost a metaphor for for the, for the interior space inside your head, and everything that happens inside that room is what's happening inside their minds. Another thing that I found interesting in light of all this is that we we don't spend all of our time in that room. Right. That right. there are these scenes on the outside of people who. Uh, if this is merely a critique of the uh, of the sort of upper class, we also realize on the outside that nobody can can get in, whether that's real or perceived. That they that they that 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 there is there is this barrier between. Um, and I found that really interesting because I didn't expect that because that seems like uh, again a broader critique than just saying this is about this sort of bourgeois wealth class thing. That there's some other traps as well. Yeah, it's inconvenient that you've pointed that out because it really kind of blows one one version of my interpretation out of the water, right? Because I've been maintaining that it's all somehow an interior failure of the will. But the fact is that this is, in fact, an objective event. It's an objective event that they cannot leave. And it's an objective fact that others cannot go in. So that's where we get back to the title, right? We get back to, well, maybe there is an exterminating angel. Maybe there is some kind of um, powerful, even malignant force that is actually um creating or, or creating these events maybe there is an objective reason why they can't leave maybe there is an objective reason why they can and i think 
rather than saying everything I said earlier doesn't stand, I think what I'm going to say is that's Bunuel having it both ways. At least that's the way I I, I want to read it. Um. <clears throat> So then once they leave, then we cut to this scene in the church and we've talked a little bit about why it would, you know, what it means for the the church to, for people to also be trapped. And we see these same party guests now at the church. Um, and as one, one of the reviews I pointed, I read pointed out, like we see them there, but once people are trapped, we don't actually see them anymore. We mm -hmm. see other people trapped there. Um, and that there, there's sort of an obviousness to like, okay, well, there's what this means. I, I wonder uh, if there's a, <laughs> it, it made me think of my favorite fictional filmmaker, uh, which is, uh, 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 James Incandenza from infinite jest. And it made like, there's this point where I thought, wow, if Boonwell really wanted to go for this, he, she, there should have been another two hours where we watch people trapped in the church <laughs> and they get out and then they're somewhere else and they get trapped and the movie literally goes on until everyone leaves until everyone in the audience leaves mm -hmm. where the point is like, you are also trapped until you decide you can leave too. That's what James and Candenza would do. And I, there was this moment where I thought, I mean, I knew the movie was over cause I knew the runtime, but I thought, what if Boone well had just said, we're going to replay the same movie here now. And then we're going to replay it in another place. And like that, now that would have been a bold move as a, as a, as like a film to be like, I am going to make this painful for you until you realize you can leave. You do not have to stay. Um, <clears throat> so when we think about that scene at the end. That so the ending is not just them trapped in the church. There's two other things that happen that I want to hear you you talk about. Uh, one is we see kind of like war in the streets happening, mm -hmm. um, and then we see this flock of sheep run into the church in the same way we saw the I don't know if it was two or three sheep run into the room. And I'm curious your thoughts about both of those things. Well, the first thing is, and, and I, I guess I, I guess I'm going to rely on what maybe is a fairly cliche political interpretation. Um, you know, as I said earlier, you know, Bunuel was um, uh, kind of self-exiled from from Spain because of the rise of fascism and the, and the Francisco Franco government, and the church, as often happened in a lot of those um, revolutions of the 30s, the church was. You know, complicit with the fascist government, and so I take it that what's happening is uh, the church is simply living in its own little world, while out on the streets, people are being slaughtered and revolution is happening. So, to me, that's it's a straightforward critique of Catholic complicity with uh, the rise of, of fascism. Um, yeah, and the, and the, the sheep going into the church. Obviously, first of all, as you already said, there's a reference to the sheep that are that were feeding the uh, fa the folks at the party. So we assume those sheep are also going to be slaughtered uh, and and eaten, and 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 perhaps also a symbol of the attitude of the upper classes towards the lower classes. They are sheep to be led to the slaughter in order that we can preserve our our own power. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I, I had, I had, I mean, th those are, I, I feel like, like the, the, the scene in the streets, like it almost demands that interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, which, which is interesting because it is, it is sort of tipping the hand a little bit more to be like, in case you thought it wasn't kind of about this, let me, let me, let me show you this. Um, I, the, the last thought I have on this, uh, and this, I mean this, I, I don't know if as a filmmaker, this would be taken as a compliment, but I mean this as a, as a high compliment. This also struck me and it, it fits 
the look to a certain degree, although this this film was, I mean, is a, looks great, uh, but it also fits the time period. This strikes me, it reminds me of like the greatest Twilight Zone episode of all time. I love the Twilight Zone, and it and one of the things we uh, in the in the pandemic that my family has gotten into is we've started with our kids watching old Twilight Zone episodes because it's a really great entry point into stories that turn in different ways or stories that are sometimes providing very obvious critiques of society, especially post-war America. Um, but also sometimes they're just even stranger where there are some of my favorite episodes, things happen. And I'm like, I'm not even sure why that happened mm-hmm. or how that could happen. And th- this just struck me as like taking that kind of storytelling and saying, what if we ramped it up even more? So this is, uh, mm. so again, I mean that as a compliment, not yeah. as, and I, but I think sometimes I don't want it to sound like comparing a, 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 a film to a TV show is especially like a 50s, 60s TV show. I really do mean that as like it, that's something that I love. And this had that same, I settled into this the same way I settled into like a, the best Twilight Zone episodes. I think that's. I think that is a compliment. I happen to. I happen to think Rod Sterling did some really interesting things with Twilight Zone, and I think. I think Benwell would take that as a compliment. All right. Are there other things you want to talk about with this film? Yeah, I guess the other. The only thing I wanted to say, Sam, the other reason I picked this film is, um, and I read a couple things uh, uh, reflecting on the film from this perspective, and that is the way in which it's a pandemic film. Um, the, 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 and and one of the one of the things that's interesting about the pandemic um, is that. Those of us who have certain kinds of jobs, certain kinds of careers, um, have been relatively unscathed. And I don't mean to be insensitive to people who have gotten sick or even lost uh, loved ones or friends. But, you know, I've been able to sit at this computer for the last uh, year and I've been able to do my job. Um, I've not suffered in pay. I've not suffered my health. I've suffered relatively minor inconveniences. But there are scores of people in a number of um, industries across the world in our nation who have lost their jobs. Many of them have lost their jobs permanently. There are people who have had to put themselves on the line for people like me in order to keep producing food, making deliveries, providing services that may put their health at risk, not to mention people who work in hospitals and other kinds of health professions. And to me, this movie is a real... Um, is a real uh, incitement to reflect on my unearned privilege and the fact that I don't have to suffer uh, and I I can live in relative safety in the midst of a pandemic, unlike millions of other people who do not have that luxury, that opportunity. So to me, in that sense, the movie is a real prick to the conscience, uh, not only to be thankful, but to be more uh, thoughtful about how people in those positions can be properly compensated and um, and protected. I love that. I, that's that's it's interesting because I I did see in the last uh, some of the things I've read in some of the movies we've watched have sort of cycled back into people writing about them, and I think I read at least one thing that talked about watching this in uh, watching this in 2020 and sort of thinking about some of those things. So I think that's that's fantastic, um, and really. Yeah, I mean, I think it, that's that's insightful and, and and kind of important things to to think about. Um, and that's, and that, that I think is when that's when you have a great work of art, right? I mean, I think to me, it's it's uh, I would put this in the same category as a, one of our my other favorite films we watched a long time ago, two years later, Doctor Strangelove. You know, the way in which 
I mean, I mean, it's interesting because satire in some respects is of a place or time, but really good satire is timeless because it's actually identified things which unfortunately are recurrent in human nature. So we can still read satire like Gulliver's Travels and still see that it's relevant even though we live in a very different historical period. So to me, this works that same way. So if somebody, if somebody was, say, like me, really lit up by this movie and thought, wow, Boonwell is pretty great like i kind of want to see something else this guy did what's what's the next boonwell movie a person should watch okay well i'm going to give you two answers i'm going to give you a boonwell movie i'm going to give you a non-boonwell movie for a boonwell movie probably go to discreet charm of the bourgeoisie which kind of reverses the exterminating angel because that's about people who can't sit down and eat uh, and so it's another it's another angle on his satire of the uh, of the, of the upper classes but i okay i'm going to throw in a, a second uh, but i also like belle du jour because Belle du Jour is very different from, from, from this film. It's a, one of his Parisian films. The I other, will say, I will say, I will say as a quick plug for a service we both now use, the Criterion Channel, all these movies that you're talking about are on there. So I, I was because as I watch this, I've started just added stuff to my list of like, okay, I want to see that and I want to see that. So the, the movies you just mentioned are on my on my watch list on there. Well, here's another one that I'm pretty sure is on the Criterion Channel. I wanted to go to it next week, but it's not broadly available. Uh, and this is another director that we haven't gotten into yet, but we will, which is Jean-Luc Godard. Um, but if you want to see Godard's version of Exterminating Angel, watch Weekend. Hmm. Uh, and so that's 1967, uh, Godard. All right. So what do you have for us for next week? I'm going to go back to Hollywood. Um, I wanted to get kind of into a little bit of classic 1970s Hollywood. Um, and uh, and do a film with one of the you know one of the big Hollywood stars of the last fifty years that we haven't watched yet, and that is um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, with Jack Nicholson, uh, Milos Forman's uh, Academy Award-winning film from '75. Oh, I'm excited for this. I saw this movie probably in the late '90s. Mm-hmm. Again, when when I sort of probably around when the AFI list came out because it's on there, yep. and I started to kind of reach out. Um, and then in the last year, I. I actually, I went and I'd never read the book. I, I read the book um, and uh, I, the book was great. The book was yeah. really, really good. Um, and I didn't go back and watch the movie again. And, and I, and having read the book recently, I, this, it's one of the things that I really wanted to see. So that's fine. I'm really excited about that uh, because yeah, I, I, I revisited it about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, Sam, and I was surprised at how well it stood up. So that's kind of why I want to go back to it. All right. What I what I will try to do, um, I'll try to read the book again this weekend too, because I want to. I'll try to read, see if I can read the book. I'll watch the movie first, and then I'll see if I can if I can squeeze the book in before we record. I'll try to do that because I I really enjoyed reading it, and I think it'd be interesting to for me to try to think about. Uh, we talk we've talked about adaptation in this um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, on this show before, so. Uh, I'll see if I can if I can manage that. I will, but I I won't make promises on that. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for. Um, Thank you so much for recommending this film. Uh, this is something I probably would have never come across, and uh, I really loved it. And I got to say, I say this every week, but the conversation has elevated this movie even more. Where I think it's uh, it's it's really 
an important movie, a really interesting movie. Uh, it was fun to watch this with my daughter and to kind of process it together. So part of my part of my process for getting ready for these conversations as we were at the bus stop this morning, I asked her, okay, exterminating angel, you gotta you gotta like help me think through this. So you know we kind of talked about um, some of the questions we talked about here were things that that Esme and I were talking about at the bus stop. So um, I, I've really loved this. Uh, so, so as always, thank you for for recommending this. Um, that is all the time that we have for this week. We will be back next week to talk about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the video store.